Good morning, everyone. Uh, before we jump into the Word this morning, I want to share with you, uh, well, it is from the Word, something that's always, it's been on my heart for many years. Um, Psalm 127, verse 1 says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Uh, during the time that I had planted a church with many of the folks who were in this room and during the time that we were there, that was the main theme verse that we repeated over and over it was the most often quoted verse in my teaching at, uh, during those five years, uh, and it's evidence that God alone is the one who builds the church. But that chapter also continues to speak about how God alone builds a family. If you jump down to verse 3, it says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb of reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children's of, children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. And I have good news for you this morning. Uh, there's one more baby who's coming on the way here in the church, and that is from Luke and Victoria Amarelli. And they are expecting, where are they? Oh, they're up there in the balcony. So <laughs> uh, they're pretty delighted, and so are we. And so please encourage them. Um, speak to them about it. I know that they are overjoyed and, and we should all rejoice with them. At this time, I'd like to ask that you please open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 2, starting in verse 11. Over the past several weeks, we've been following the life of Hannah as she learned to treasure the Lord above all else. <clears throat> Today, the camera is going to shift a little bit and it's going to start following the life of Samuel instead. But in our passage this morning, Samuel is going to serve as a contrast with the house of Eli. You see, the narrative is going to do this interesting thing. The writing here is brilliant, and what it's going to do is it's going to ping-pong back and forth between Eli's family stories and Samuel. And it's going to do that over and over in order to highlight both the godliness of Samuel and the godlessness of Eli's family, particularly his sons. The text that we're about to read is pushing forward toward that promise that God is going to send a good king who is going to set up a good kingdom. And once again, we're going to see the Lord do that in an intricately and surprising way. Follow along as we listen to the very word of God as he has spoken it to us in 1 Samuel chapter 2, starting verse 11. Then Elkanah <clears throat> went home to Ramah. And the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priest with the people was that any man offered, when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself." This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first, then take as much as you wish, he would say, No, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force." Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. 
Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod, and his mother used to make him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters, and the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all of Israel, and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel." Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel declares, I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me, For those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever." The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and shall say, please put me in one of the priest's places that I might eat a morsel of bread. This is God's word. Let's pray and ask his blessing over the preaching this morning. Father God, we ask that today as we come before this passage of Scripture that is so weighty and so heavy and so rich in biblical history and so rich in moral teaching, Lord, I just ask that we would come to it and see Jesus Christ, your Son, that you would reveal him to us and that we would delight in him this morning. 
And I pray, Lord, that even as this sermon prepares our hearts for the Lord's table this morning, you would give us delight and joy in the salvation that we have received through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray these things. Amen. Our approach today to this text is going to try to look at it very simply. It's very complex. There's so many different angles at which we could approach this. But because it's so rich and so full and there's so much detail, our approach is going to be to simply dive in by looking at it through two angles. First, parenthood, and secondly, priesthood. Let's begin by talking about parenthood. A couple of nights ago, I put Caspian, my three-year-old son, to bed, and we went through the entire process of brushing teeth and getting tucked in and reading bookies, book after book after book, after his huge pile was depleted. I laid there and I asked him, Caspian... What do you need to do now? Go to sleep. That's right. And what happens if you get up? Discipline. That's right. And what happens if you turn on the light? Discipline. And what happens if uh, you continue to mess with your brother this evening? Discipline. That's right. So what do you need to do? Go to sleep. That's right. Now, I love you. Good night. And then tickle fight, and then he goes to sleep, right? Well, less than five minutes later, I was downstairs at the, at the dinner table with my wife and a couple of my older kids, and we hear Caspian singing, not just singing, but like screaming singing, like top of his lungs singing, the loudest he could possibly be, and he's singing some mashup version of Old MacDonald Had a Farm with all of the events of the day, and he's throwing in people's names, and he's singing about how much he loves people, and I went up, and I, I, before I went upstairs, I said to Ashley, he has to know we can hear him, Right? Like, he has to know. He has to know that we can hear him. But I went upstairs, and to be honest, it was hard for me not to laugh uh, because of the things that he was singing. But I went in, and I had told him he would receive discipline, so I lovingly but firmly corrected him and got him to lay down. And I think we had to do that a couple of times before he actually went to sleep. Uh, Parenting is difficult. Parenting is difficult because what it is is God giving you a sinner to take care of until they grow up to an adult. He is entrusting to our care somebody not who is perfectly pure and perfectly innocent, but someone who at their core is born with the exact same sin problem that you and I were born with. We all inherited a nature that rebels against the Lord and therefore rebels against the authority structures the Lord puts in place. Meaning, if you are a parent, you, their job as a sinner, their goal, their desire is to do what they want to do, not what you want them to do. And certainly not to do what is right. One thing people often say to new parents is, just remember, they don't come with an instruction manual or something like that. And I get what they're trying to say because parents have to learn a lot of things. When you become a parent, there is a massive learning curve about diapers and sleep schedules. And you have to learn how to keep them from wandering into traffic. But the fact is, we actually do have an instruction manual that the Lord has given us about how to raise kids. And this instruction manual, this instruction manual tells us all of the most important things about raising children. The Bible teaches us about parenting in a lot of different ways. Sometimes it's through direct command or through specific instruction. For example, we think of the Proverbs that tells us many things that we should be doing as we raise our kids. But other times we can simply learn from the way the Holy Spirit has recorded examples for us in the Scripture. We can look at the narratives, the stories, the people of the Old Testament, and we can see how God either blessed or cursed their parenting. There are many examples of terrible fathers in the Bible, many. Uh, Lot, Isaac, Jacob, Saul, David, the list just goes on and on and on. 
Each one of those fathers failed to raise their children in accordance with God's standards, every one of them. And we can look at those men and we can see from their example what not to do. But today we're going to look at one of the most helpful examples of bad parenting in the Bible because in this instance, God actually sent a messenger to tell Eli exactly what he had done wrong. We don't have to guess at what he got wrong. We can actually know with confidence and assurity through no interpretation, just straight prima facie reading of the text, what he got wrong. So I want to point out four things about Eli's parenting here that may help us as parents and those who are grandparents and those who are surrounding parents and those who are future parents in the room. First, I want you to see that Eli's sons were contemptuous. I want to remind you that all of this takes place during the time of the judges when there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And since there was no king, the highest position of authority in Israel rested on the three men in this chapter. Eli was the most prominent authority figure that was in place in all of Israel, and his two sons were functionally running the process of worship in the tabernacle. So although this did not give them political authority, they were not kings, it did make them gatekeepers to worshiping God in accordance with the old covenant law. If you wanted to worship him, and you wanted to do exactly what the law of Moses said, how would you do it? You would go to Eli and Hophni and Phinehas, and they were supposed to instruct you and educate you and lead you in worship. And they would have likely been the most highly educated men in the entire land. And even more, they would have been the most educated in the Scripture. They would have had it in their presence. It was kept there in the tabernacle. They are the ones who would have read it, and they are the ones who were responsible to tell everyone else what it said. So when the faithful people of Israel would come to the tabernacle, desirous to worship the Lord with their sacrifices, Hophni and Phinehas would steal a portion of their sacrifices for themselves. Now it tells us exactly how this process was done, where they would initially, they were sticking the fork into the pot and had three prongs, and as the meat was boiling, pieces of it would begin to crumble off and it would shrink. It's kind of like at McDonald's, they say it's a quarter pounder, but after they cook it, it's only like a, you know, a small portion of that. Here, they're taking the meat from the pot initially. It's the original pot luck. Whatever comes out, that's what you get, right? Pot luck. Nobody likes my jokes. (laughs) However, they learned a way to get around this little situation by saying, well, instead of waiting until the meat is boiling and shrinking and losing its fat and muscle and pieces all over in that water, I would much rather have a raw steak that I can take in and I can cook for myself and I can keep as much of that meat as possible without losing any of it. And so they begin to threaten people as they come in to take the meat of the sacrifices before they are boiled in the pot. And so they dedicated themselves to this scheme where they would even go so so far as to threaten violence against people who refused. So the text tells us this is how they treated everyone who came in to worship. Anyone who was actually attempting to worship God appropriately, they were messing it up, and they were doing so to fatten themselves. And it says in verse 17, Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. They were contemptuous towards the Lord. Why was this such a big deal? Well, it's a big deal because of what the sacrifices represent. Every single person who came there in faith, what were they doing? They were offering up a sacrifice that represented the idea that their sins were forgiven. 
Every single one of those animals that were sacrificed, every one was a picture of the coming sacrifice that would truly pay for their sins. Every single one of those sacrifices was supposed to be done in accordance with the law of Moses because in the law of Moses, God had set forth a precedent to paint a picture of what would actually come and save the people from their sins. So by showing contempt for these sacrifices, Hophni and Phinehas were having contempt, not just for a piece of lamb roasting on an oven. They were having contempt for Jesus Christ. By showing contempt for the sacrifices, Hophni and Phinehas were spitting on the gospel. And just like Caspian, you would think, they have to know, right? They have to know that God sees this. They have to know that he can hear them. He, they have to know that they are not going to get away with this. If you go back up to Hannah's prayer, it says in verse 3, that God is the one who knows all things. He's the one who actually sees what's done in secret. The second thing that I want you to see regarding parenting here is that Eli was image conscience. Look at verse 22 through 24 again. And as I read it, I want you to notice that Eli doesn't say anything to correct their wickedness. He only seems to care about their reputation. It says, now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear from the people of the Lord spreading abroad. So far, he is not offended for the glory of God. He is not here telling them, you must stop because God is holy and this is not good. No, he's not offended by their sexual sin in the house of the Lord. He's not commanding them to be faithful to their wives and children at home, which it appears according to the text. I mean, by the time we get to chapter 4, they've got full families. And it doesn't seem like there's that much time in between. He seems only to be concerned that their sins are now public and everyone's talking about them. It's like that kid who curses up a storm on the playground and his parent corrects them and says, little Johnny, we don't talk like that. And little Johnny says, but mom, we talk like that at home all the time. Why is that parent concerned? They're just concerned because they don't want you to think they're a bad parent. Why is he concerned? He's just concerned about the reputation of his, himself and his family. That parent, a parent like Eli, they're not worshiping God in their parenting. They're worshiping their own image. Are you doing that? Do you want your kids to look good just so they make you look good? Is that how you correct them? Is that why you train them to do what they do? Or are you genuinely attempting to point them to living for the glory of God? Is your concern how they stand before the Lord or their reputation and your reputation in public? The third thing that I want you to see here is that Eli was complicit. Now, although Eli seems to be pretty hands-off when it comes to the extortion of meat, and he's not involved in the sexual escapades of these boys, we find out later in the chapter that he was still reaping the rewards of their sin. The chapter concludes with a mysterious stranger delivering a message of judgment from the Lord. And in verse 29, that prophet delivers a divine question, a question directly from the mouth of God, directly to Eli, and it says, Why do you scorn my sacrifices and offerings that I commanded for my dwelling? And why do you honor your sons above above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Do you see that? He is lumped in with his sons in the consumption of that food. 
In other words, he might not be the one sticking the fork into the pot, but he's certainly the one eating it from the dinner plate. It's important for us to understand God lumps them together as being co-recipients of ill-gotten gain. They were getting fat by stealing from the Lord. Later on, when we reach chapter 4, we see that even to his death, Eli remained a, quote, very heavy man. This was not just a permissive father who allowed his sons to sin against the Lord. Being a permissive parent who lets your kids do whatever they want, that is bad. But he was also engaging with them. He was a guilty father who was happy to glean from the spoils of their sin. When we speak about parenting, we're typically talking about parenting small children or teenagers. Well, Eli's sons were neither of those. Eli's sons were grown men making grown man messes. And they were essentially running a racket in the tabernacle and sleeping around with female volunteers. And you might be thinking, what in the world does this have to do with me raising my little ones? Because I can't control what they do when they're adults. I can't control what happens when they're out of my house. And that is actually true. But there is an underlying issue that is at stake here in the very heart of Eli That is central to his bad parenting. It's something that you need to guard against from day one as a parent. We find it when God says, in what we just read a few minutes ago, God tells Eli, you honor your sons above me. You honor your sons above me. The very worst thing that you can do for your child, the very worst thing, is that you can put them in a place above the Lord. By honoring his children above the Lord, Eli taught his sons that you are what's most important, not the Lord. And that is why they began to despise true worship of the one true God. Parents, the most important thing that you can do for your children is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then you will love them like you should. If you put them first, and like Eli, honor them more than the Lord, they're only going to learn to worship themselves. Last word on parenting here. When you look at Eli's rebuke of his sons, it was definitely weak and it certainly missed the point. It also appears that it was a one-time event rather than a consistent pattern of correction like it should have been. But regardless, the text tells us exactly why the sons rejected the call to turn from their sin. Verse 25, this shocking verse. But they would not listen to the voice of their father for it was the will of of the Lord to put them to death. Parents, there are general principles that we can see in the scriptures about raising children. If you raise them up in the way they should go, they will not depart from it. There there are practical lessons we can learn about training and teaching and instructing the heart of our kids. But there are things that you can do as a parent. Uh, you, You can do a lot of things, but you cannot make them believe. You can point them to the cross every day, but you cannot save your children's soul. You cannot force or manipulate or cajole or trick them into the kingdom. Salvation belongs to the Lord, and he must do a saving work to bring them in. Now, what you might be feeling when I speak of this is a kind of discouragement. You wish it were up to you. You wish you could make it happen. But parent, please hear me when I say that if it were up to us to save our children, then there would be no hope. You might not be like Eli, but you do have something in common with him. You are a sinner, and you are an imperfect parent. Even the best of parents fail to perfectly point their children to the Lord. Even the best. Even the most godly Christian parents are still sinners, putting sin on display before their kids daily. Praise God that we are not responsible to save our kids because we would fail. So parent, this is actually good news 
for us today because regardless of whether your child is in your future or in your womb or in your basement or in their 50s, they're not outside of God's reach. Whether you look at them and you think, I have done everything possible for them and I just, I have lost them. I can't do anything more for them. They're not outside of God's control. Whether your example to your children was generally gospel-centered when they were growing up or to this point in their lives, or if you came to know Christ long after they were out of your house, it doesn't ultimately change the fact that God can fix everything that you've broken. Salvation belongs to the Lord, and we must ask Him to save our children. Now, as we shift now to the second point of our sermon, I want to explain something about the approach that we take to preaching here at Levittown Baptist. There's a kind of preaching that is called moralistic preaching. And the way that our a preacher prepares a moralistic sermon, we don't do that here, but a way someone would is that they go through a story like this one and they simply pick out a few lessons about how to be a better person, how to be a better dad, how to have a better, have a better marriage, how to be a little bit more financially responsible. Now, the Bible does have a lot to say about morality and wisdom, but that's not the main point of the text. That's never the main point of the text. The main point of the text is always about Christ. And we know that because Jesus provided us the central principle of understanding the Bible of hermeneutics in John 5, 39, when he said, you search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life, but these are they which testify of me. So although we can look at parenting, the main point of this chapter is not actually about how you parent your children. The main point about this is actually about Jesus Christ. And I am really excited to show you how we see that so clearly in our second point this morning, parenthood. The priesthood was established, I'm sorry, priesthood is the second point. The priesthood was established during Exodus 28 verse 1, all the way back when they had first come out of the the, uh, land of Egypt, they had received the Ten Commandments, and one of the next things that happens is the Lord God commands that there will be a priesthood. We see in Exodus 28, verse 1, then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. Now, maybe a couple of those names sound familiar to you, because if you remember your Old Testament well, you'll know that Nadab and Abihu were killed by the Lord because they had corrupted worship, and they did that by something that the Bible simply calls strange fire. If you want to know what that is, I have no idea. But all we know is they corrupted worship, and they did it incorrectly, and God was very displeased, so the Lord killed them. And so what happens? Aaron's next son, Ithamar, was the one who became the next high priest. And Ithamar is the great-grandfather of Eli. The prophetic messenger who came to visit Eli was not just there to plea for change. In fact, if you read through his message, he never once commands repentance. He doesn't say, if you just turn, God will forgive. No, the message that was delivered was a message of straight judgment. He was there to inform Eli that just like Nadab and Abihu, who had corrupted worship before him, the line of Ithamar was now going to come to an end because of faulty worship. Now, I want to show you two reasons why this priestly line had failed that we find in our text today. First, look again at verse 12. There it says, Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. Now, I would like to issue, issue a correction or a retraction from a couple of weeks ago. Uh, you may remember, I think it was two Sundays ago, that I said that Hophni and Phinehas were garbage and that they were, I didn't feel bad saying that because the verse calls them worthless men. 
Now, I want to say that I don't actually think that that's an acceptable way to speak about people, alive or dead. And I don't ever want to minimize or discount the value of the image of God that every single person bears by calling them garbage. I think that was inappropriately stated, indicating that I might think it's acceptable to look at people or think of people in that way. People are not garbage. People are made in the image of the Lord, and we should always think of them as precious for that reason. So please forgive me. However, it is not wrong to try to understand what it means that they were called worthless men. The literal Hebrew here says that they were sons of Eli and sons of Belial. It doesn't say worthless men. It says sons of Belial. Now, according to Strong's Concordance, Belial can mean worthless, but it can also mean wickedness or even the devil. For example, we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 6.15 that Paul, someone who is very familiar with these Old Testament verses, employs the word Belial as a proper name of Satan. He's talking there about not being unequally yoked, and it is there that he says, what has Christ with Belial, or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? These two sons of Eli were also sons of another. They were sons of their father, the devil. It should be no surprise that they functioned as enemies of the Lord. A little more than a thousand years later, Jesus would have a conversation with a group of the religious leaders of Israel in John 8, and he said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I'm here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and you do his will, and your will is to do his Uh, your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Do you see what he's doing? Perhaps you're beginning to see some parallels established here. Just as the priestly system of worship was corrupted during the time of Eli and needed to be replaced, it was also corrupted during the time of Christ. It was rotten and it needed something new. But before we see how that happened, we need to think more carefully about what it means that some people are children of the devil. Who are these people? Well, 1 John 3, 5 through 10 gives us that answer very clearly. Pay close attention. This is a long text, but listen carefully to what he says. You know that he, Jesus, appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning, and no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So, if you are keeping track, those who are children of God are those who have had their sins taken away. That's verse 5. And, in other words... Everyone who has not yet had their sins taken away 
remains a child of the devil. This is a binary option. He says there are only two places you can be. There are two family lines. You are either of your father the devil or you are born of God. Or if you want to see it in 1 Samuel language, if you look at verse 12 again, it defines the childhood of Belial by simply saying, they did not know the Lord. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, the Bible puts you in this category. That should be an uncomfortable category for you. But I want you to hear the good news that Jesus Christ came so that you could be born again into a different family, so that you might be called a child of God. He died on the cross so that he could destroy the works of the devil, and part of that looks like taking people who were children of the devil and bringing them in to be children of God. If you believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, you will be saved and you will be a child of God. Chapter 3, verse 1 says, Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us that we might be called sons of God, and so we are. Amen. If you are here and do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, you can be saved and you will be saved if you trust in him for the forgiveness of your sins. And then you will no longer be a child of the devil, but you will be a child of God. And if you are in the room and you are a Christian, that is your testimony. That is your story. Let's consider now the second way that we can see the priesthood had failed. First, we saw that it was being instructed by the children of the devil. Now, let's see again another way that the priesthood had failed. Look again at verse 25, and you'll see exactly why this priestly line had had to come to an end. When attempting to correct his sons, look at what Eli said in verse 25. He says this little interesting phrase. He asks, if someone sins against a man... God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? Now, that's a really good question, and that's actually one that every single person on earth should ask and seek to answer. If you sin against God, who can intercede for you? But you know, do you know what's really sad about this question? Is that of all people, Eli should know the answer because under the old covenant, that was his job. Under the old covenant, it was the high priest who was supposed to go and intercede for the people and who would sacrifice on their behalf. And he looks at his sons and he says, if you sin against God, who's going to help you? Eli didn't understand the purpose of his own job. For him, his role had become nothing more than a matter of routine religious ritual. He didn't view the sacrifices as a promise of God's atoning work. He definitely did not believe that God would ever intercede himself on behalf of sinners. In short, Eli did not believe the gospel, even the gospel that was veiled in type and shadow under the old covenant sacrifices. Those who trusted and knew the Lord believed in the forgiveness of sin. If you don't believe me, just read any of the Psalms and you see it on every page. But this man who was responsible for leading people in practicing worship and sacrificing to the Lord for the forgiveness of sins, looking forward to the ultimate sacrifice, this man himself did not believe that God forgives sin. Now, I've said in every sermon so far in 1 Samuel that this book is all about a good king who would come and set up a good kingdom, and that is true. And get used to hearing it, because we're going to hear it every single week for a long time. But it's also a book about a faithful priest who is going to come and make a true atoning sacrifice. Look at verse 35 again. I think this is the most important verse in the entire chapter, and here's where it says, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed 
forever. Now, to, just a couple of brief notes on this. This is the exact same language that is going to be repeated in 2 Samuel chapter 7 when God makes a covenant with David and says, I am going to build you a house. And there he is speaking about David as king, but not David as the one who was, the house is being built for. He's looking forward to another who is going to rule in that house forever. And it seems here that the text is saying that that priest that is being mentioned here, the coming faithful priest, will also serve in that same house forever. As we make our way forward through this book, it's going to be really easy to start looking for that great priest. Where is he? Where is this priest at? We're going to try to see somebody who has this connection with the anointed king. And it might be easy to think that that's David when David shows up. It looks like everything is lining up for that. And you might think that it's Samuel. Just look how Hannah's prophetic prayer is coming to pass so quickly. The bows of the mighty are being broken in Eli's family. The Lord has promised to kill Eli's family and raise up his great high priest. And in accordance with the last verse in the chapter, Eli's house, which was so great, is going to hire themselves out for bread. If you were here last week, those words should sound so familiar because all of the things that this prophet came and said would happen are the same things that Hannah prayed and said are taking place in God's kingdom. Those are direct fulfillments to Hannah's prayer. So it might seem to you that this great priest must be coming immediately since these prophecies are coming right on the heels of her prayer. And as you read through this chapter, I think you're supposed to wonder, is maybe Samuel the one who's going to take up that mantle? Because between every single dark portion of the story about Eli and his sons, there is a bright spot about Samuel. Verse 11, the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Verse 18, Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. A linen ephod is the clothing of a priest. Verse 21, indeed the Lord visited Hannah and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Verse 28. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. And if we dip our toes ever so slightly into chapter 3, we see in verse 1. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. Between every single vignette of the life of Eli's family, we see this spark of light, this brilliant flash of hope in Samuel. So maybe the reader would expect Samuel is the one this must be talking about. He must be that coming priest who is going to serve in place of Eli. But as we find out, that never happens. Instead, Samuel is never referred to as a priest, but instead a judge and a seer and a prophet. So we keep looking ahead for that great high priest to come. Now eventually, the promise of judgment that was told here to Eli it does happen over Eli's house. We're going to get to the bloody end of his sons in chapter 4, Hophni and Phinehas, who die on the same day. We'll see Eli actually also dies that same day. We see almost all of the rest of Eli's descendants wiped out by King Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Now, what's happening there is King Saul is attempting to find David, and he thinks he is going to be able to uh, kind of snuff him out by wiping out all of these priests. And only one of those priests remained alive. His name was Abiathar, and he escaped. And because of that prophecy, we can, what we heard today in our text, we can assume that while he was running from that place, he cried his eyes out. We are told in 1 Samuel chapter 22, they killed everyone else, every man, woman, and child, presumably including his own wife and children. Then in 1 Kings chapter 2, one of the first acts of Solomon as king is he looks at Abiathar, this one last remaining priest of the family of Eli, 
and he cuts him off and removes him as priest and replaces him with Zadok, who is from a different line of Aaron's family, that one remaining brother's line in the family. And therefore, Eli's line was completely eliminated. And the Aaronic priesthood that would eventually be overthrown, however, remained. The high priest, however, that is being spoken of in this chapter, the one that is to come, it was not one of Aaron's line. He would be like Samuel in the fact that he was of low birth. And he was like Samuel in the fact that he had a mother who prayed in parallel to Hannah's prayer. And his name, the prophet's name, the, one, or the priest's name that would come, was called Jesus. Luke 2.52 tells us, Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Now, that should sound very familiar because that's exactly what it says of Samuel in this text. Samuel, therefore, is serving as a signpost that is pointing us forward to the one that would actually serve as this great high priest. Now, what we're going to do at this time is we are going to turn our attention to the Lord's Supper. And I would like to invite those who are serving uh, as ushers this morning to go ahead and come forward and begin passing out the elements as we continue to meditate on the high priestly ministry of Jesus. And as they pass these things out, I would like to ask that you continue to consider Jesus the high priest. Here's what Hebrews tells us about Jesus, the fulfillment of this passage. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 17 says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Remember, Eli asked, if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? That is a really good question. And the answer is, it can only be a high priest. And if Jesus was listening, it's as if he raised his hand and he said, that's me. Who's going to pay for those sins? Who is going to intercede? Who is going to be the one who propitiates the Father's wrath? That's me. And that is why in Hebrews 7.22, it says this. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests, priests like Eli and his sons, they were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. Now, remember the kind of priests that Eli and Hophni and Phinehas were. Now, not everyone in the Old Testament was that wicked, but let me tell you, every last one of them, every last one of them had failed, and every last one of them had sinned. But when it comes to Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26, he tells us that there's one kind of priest that we need. It was fitting that we should have such a high priest, one that is holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. It's like he is using every possible terminology that he can find to tell us this Jesus is not like those other priests. This Jesus is pure and righteous and perfect and holy. And he continues and says, he has no need like those priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Jesus did not have to ever in any way give sacrifice for himself. 
Hophni and Phinehas, look, they were bad priests. Even the best of the old covenant priests, when they would go in, they had to make sacrifice for their own sin. Unlike those people, Jesus was perfectly pure. The priestly work of Jesus was so very different from Hophni and Phinehas. He didn't have contempt for the sacrifice. He himself was the sacrifice. He had no need to seek atonement for his own sins. He was sinless. He was the holy priest who alone could offer himself as a holy sacrifice. When Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, he established this as a practice for the church to remember the sacrifice that he was making. In other words, this is instituted to remind us of the priestly work of Jesus. The elements that we are passing out right now, listen, they are just bread and they are juice. They are not transformed into the literal body and blood of Jesus in order to re-crucify the Lord of glory. As we read in Hebrews chapter 7, his sacrifice, as it says, was once for all. What we are about to do when we partake of this bread and of this juice This is an illustration. It is a picture of his sacrifice so that we can join together our heart, soul, mind, and strength, putting our entire body's focus in remembering what he has done for us. And if you're joining us today and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, I would ask that you please refrain from partaking of the Lord's Supper today. We simply ask that you look at what we're doing and you see as we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, and that you see the work of the high priest who has paid the penalty for sin. So please do not partake of the, of the bread and the juice today if you are not a believer, because the scripture teaches us that in doing so, you actually eat and drink judgment on yourself. But for those who are believers, I ask you today to remember that your great high priest, Jesus Christ, has finished his work. Hebrews 10, 11 through 14 says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Brothers and sisters, it is is finished. Jesus said at the cross to tell us I, it is finished, completed, done, effectuated. His sacrifice was accepted. And we know this for sure because God raised him from the dead. So he is now seated because no more sacrifices will ever be made for sin. Not one. Jesus paid it all. In just a moment, we're going to partake together of the bread This bread represents the body of Christ and the body that was given for us. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 8 through 10, tells us exactly what that sacrifice accomplished. It says, When he had said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and bird offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that, by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. This bread is a picture of the body that was given so that you could also be made holy, that you could be made like him, that you could be his child, 
that you have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, let's partake together. I would like to ask that now you take the cup and you consider what Christ has done for you. Hebrews 9, 11 through 14 tells us about the priestly work of Jesus and the blood when it says, but when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood, of bulls and goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? How much more will the blood of Christ the blood of Christ has been given to save and to purify sinners like you and me. Brothers and sisters, let's partake together. Our Father God, we thank you that we have a great high priest, one who was so very unlike Eli, one who not only believed that God intercedes, but one who himself came as the Son of God to intercede on our behalf one who came to pay the penalty for our sin, one who came to bring forgiveness. And Lord, we thank you that Jesus is a better priest than Hophni and Phinehas. We thank you that he came and he did not view the sacrifice contemptuously, but that he preserved himself purely, always walking in obedience until that day when he laid down his life so that he might be a perfect and sinless sacrifice on our behalf. We pray, Lord, that today, as we remember Jesus Christ, your Son, that we would be enthralled with joy as we think on and meditate upon the fact that he, our loving priest, intercedes for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.